Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. I think one of the things that I want to talk about, um, I've got something that is really uppermost on my mind today. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about is that we will not be uh, actively teaching the next two Sundays, this coming Sunday's Palm Sunday. And um, last year at this time, the church didn't have uh, its act together well enough to know what to do. We were just at the beginning of COVID. So we were able to live stream on uh, Palm Sunday. But a year's passed and uh, the team of technical people at the church has really done an outstanding job in being able to present um, outdoor worship. So this year they will be having worship services, I think, at 8.30 and 11 or something like that. And um, it really stretches the technical crew too thin to be able to do that and to live stream ordinary life at the same time so tim said that he would find something tim leatherwood said that he would find maybe archival stuff from last year and uh, broadcast it this sunday i'd be interested in seeing that and then of course we we never uh have class on easter sunday anyway so um we would take those two weeks off i would love to hear from people um, because we're coming to the end of, of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to do the probably the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but um, I'd love to hear from people what they are interested in hearing us talk about. I would love that too. I, I'm already curious what would some of the responses be. Um, where are people right now, and what's exciting, what's alive for them? Um, so yeah, let's, uh, you can email all of your complaints to Curly at Mac.com and all of your <laughs> <laughs> praise to Holly Headley at Timbo studio at hotmail.com. <laughs> um, uh, that's what I, I used to say that if anybody had any complaints about ordinary life, they should tell me if they had anything of praise to say, they should tell Jim Banks. To- that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. That's that, that's that yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, what is uppermost on my mind uh, is America's psychosis. Good Lord. And um, in, in all likelihood, in all likelihood that somebody will die of a gun violence death while we are making this podcast. Yeah. You know, we have now you and I have two backup researchers, Josh, and you call Sherry your research department. And Josh, on a regular basis, sends us both articles and um, interesting things to read. And I think he just sent us, um, maybe it was just me, but in the last seven days, there's been seven mass shootings. Absolutely. You know, and you just go... I had a text from another friend of a sort of stream that I'm on. He's an, a, one of my oldest friends and I love him dearly. But his his text said specifically, gosh, anyone watching America right now would 
imagine that we are addicted to violence. And I was like, we are, <laughs> we are addicted to violence. I mean, it's. Well, we don't, I don't have statistics for anything more recent than 2019. And I'm getting these from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. But in 2019, there were uh, 14,414 homicides in the United States. That's one every 36 minutes. Mm. And there were another 23,941 people who turned guns on themselves. That's once every 22 minutes. And um, as Josh pointed out to you, um, we've had seven mass shootings in the last seven days. And no other country in the world has this problem. Mm -hmm. And it's that we, uh, we're sick. I mean, it's a psychosis. Yeah. I mean, there certainly is um, violence and unmonitored, unmonitored violence at that in, in other countries. Um, I'll say something about that in a second, but that we have this kind of um, framework for something called democracy in our country and that within that democracy, we have this much violence, this much gun violence, this much sanctioned by the state, that people can carry arms, that people can carry really serious assault weapons. And, you know, there, there's, there's just an interesting thing there for me to think about. What is the connection between freedom and violence? And I don't have an answer to that. Um, but the freedom to bear assault weapons, the freedom to bear arms does not render us more safe. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I feel less safe as every day passes Yeah. because I was um, thinking last night, looking at the news, and being just so sad, yeah, so sad that all these lives are are denied the right to a full, meaningful life because we have some idiotic interpretation of the Second Amendment. Yeah, and um, you know, it is no longer. Um, it is no longer not true to say this could have happened here. As a matter of fact, one of the mass shootings in the last seven days did take place in Houston, one in Dallas, one in California, one in Oregon, one in Pennsylvania, um, Colorado, Colorado and, and Florida. I mean, it, it's just, it's just, it's just insane. And we, our response is always the same. Mm -hmm. The people who would be like you and me decry this, bemoan it. We we're just grief stricken for people and other people tout the right to bear arms and and it seems that no price is too big to pay for that yeah it, it just it's just that begs the question of like when is enough enough 
I also think that, you know, we cannot overlook that in these public mass shootings, that they are almost always carried out by white males. And one of the things that happens when they're carried out by white males is we look at it as an individual problem, an individual, um, you know, I think the mayor of Atlanta said he had a bad day, which is just inexcusable. He said so what? He said about the shooter of the, uh, of the spas. In- oh, the police, that was the police chief. Mm-hmm. I was, said, you're right. Police chief said he, he had a bad he was, day. He was having a bad day. That's idiotic. And so we have this permissible psychosis on an individual level for these white male shooters. And yet we say violence is a collective problem and specifically in black communities or communities of color. And, and yet we, we kind of coddle these individuals as, oh, they're either having a bad day, some version of they have mental illness, you know, but our collective mental illnesses we have an addiction to violence. And we, we think that violence is the way to stay powerful, to stay um, in charge, to stay in control. And I, I, I am really, really tired of the narrative of the white male shooter of, of some version of he was having a bad day. A friend sent me, and I'll only read the introduction, um, some sort of, I, I wanna say it's sort of satirical that says an editorial template for every time a white person commits an atrocious crime. And it has, you know, kind of like fill in, like a Mad Lib, fill in the blank. So um, fill in the blank, people are dead and an equally appalling high number are injured after fill in the blank, year old, fill in the blank, generic white guy name committed, fill in the blank, atrocious racially motivated crime in fill in the blank, you know? So it's like, we have this sort of template and to, we, we're in denial of two things. One, that this is an actual collective problem. And number two, that many of these crimes are also racially motivated. Mm-hmm. And I just, that breaks my heart. But we say, but black on black violence is normal. Those communities are just violent. No, not what's no. going on here, you know? Well, um, this, is, this is another thing that makes me so sad. I, I, feel, I feel impotent mm-hmm. because we have one of these things that hap- has happened and, and the news clip that I saw last night was a kind of did a retrospective uh, having people on since Columbine mm-hmm. and the mass shootings that have taken place since then. And uh, um, we can come to the same damn stalemate every time it's a mass shooting. Some people calling for stricter gun controls and some people touting the second amendment and it just stays there until the next mass shooting. Yeah. And and what you said about violence, do you remember um, some time ago, I talked about America being in the grips of these shadow archetypes. Mm-hmm. And one of them is our belief, our absolute belief in redemptive yeah. violence. Um, we've got enough atomic weapons to blow the world up 10 mm-hmm. times. That's crazy. That's, crazy. That's a psychotic. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, that's just that if you saw an individual who had that many weapons stockpile in his, not her, his house, you'd say that guy's mm -hmm. crazy. And, and we have it as a country. And I don't know how we get out of it. I, I really don't. I, I, I think that um, I, know, I know men uh, who are really committed to working on uh, saving the world one man at a time by helping men come to terms with their anger and rage and to learn how to be powerful instead of strong. Yeah and to be loving instead of erotic. Um, but it isn't, it isn't happening fast that's enough. We're slow. killing ourselves. I mean, that's kind of like um, undoing racism one relationship at a time, right? But eventually <laughs> it doesn't tip the scales, you know? Um, it, there's two things that's been on our mind as a family this week. Um, you know, I'm raising three boys. I'm raising three biracial boys at that. And um, not only are they subject to um, racial violence in this country. I mean, that's just probably going to be an inevitable part of their life. They're going to experience racial violence, whether in word or in deed, at some point in their life. They've already seen it play out on the news. They've already seen it in their, it's in their psyche already. Um, and number two, how to raise boys in this particular time without having an exposure and potential addiction to violence through the use of video games, let's say. You know, we're, we're really protective of our kids and screen time and what they can or can't play. And our kids are getting smarter than we are about how to get around these, these things, these parental controls, they know how to download apps, even, you know, I mean, it's, it's really, there's a frightening speed at which this happens. Right. Um, and I have three boys who couldn't be more different. I have one who is super tender. We had a long talk with them last night about safety, about internet safety. And because um, we had found an app on one of our kids' iPads that we weren't okay with. And we had to have a talk about what does it mean to be safe on the internet? Why, why are you as a child susceptible to being um, hurt more than I as an adult? Because you know, how do we learn filters? And I have one kiddo who's, who began to cry. He's my oldest. And he felt, he felt so scared. He was like, why are there scary adults in the world? Why are adults scary? And you know, all we could do is just hold him and say, I don't know, baby, but we're trying to be safe adults for you. you know, we're, we're doing our best to be safe adults for you. And and my other son who gets sort of my middle son who gets kind of overwhelmed and he is actually really intrigued by, by violence, by, um, by weapons. This is the, whose iPad we found this on. And, and he kind of doesn't know how to handle this emotion and starts to make jokes or starts to kind of um, tries to minimize it in his own experience. Right. And my third son, um, my youngest is very justice oriented and he's kind of like, this isn't right. Why do people do this? You know, so it's, it's really interesting, the different responses. And, and in the meantime, so that's going on in our actual house constantly right now. And my kids are at a point where they're getting more independence. They're getting smarter with technology. We as parents have to catch up to that and be, be one step ahead. Um, and the other part, the other thing that's happening is that Josh is reading a book called um, To Raise a Boy. I think it's called To Raise a Boy. 
And it's similar in sort of ideology as the, the movie, The Mask You Live In, how mm-hmm. boys have been, how boys and men have been raised to be um, masculine in a toxic way, as opposed mm-hmm. to, as you say, um, strong, not powerful, you know? Right. And, and, you know, it's having, Josh is examining what he was taught as a man, um, we're examining how are we communicating these messages to our, our own boys. Um, and the allowance for my oldest, for example, to shed tears and to feel that tenderness and to feel that fear and us just being able and willing to hold him in that. N- neither one of us said, oh, baby, don't cry. You know, <laughs> we just said, this yeah. is really hard. But the world, the world is still giving him the opposite message. You know, and you got to toughen up, you got to, you know, and this is, this is really tricky as a parent. How do you help them have enough ego strength to manage in the world, but enough internal value to be able to express their authentic selves? There was an article in the New York Times today about a research project that Um, checked out this writer's intuition that of all the countries in the world, America presents its news in the most negative down way possible. And so he did this research project and started checking out. And it's true that news presented in America is presented in scary, negative, down ways, because that's what we are also addicted to. It sells. Um, I know that that if you I don't watch um, nighttime television, commercial television, but I can't help sometimes. But in navigating from one thing to another, get across commercial channels and local channels will always advertise their six o'clock and ten o'clock news with some scary teaser. Mm-hmm. You know, is there's been another mass shooting? Is your neighborhood next? Mm-hmm. Is your water safe to drink? Is your child safe at school? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So that's what sells. Yeah. I um, I had had a colleague. I've not told you this because mm-hmm. I just finished it. Um, I, I had a colleague who said, um, "Have you read Jim Hollis's latest book?" Mm-hmm. And I said, no, what is it? And he said, well, I think you'd be interested in it because it looks like he's been stealing your material. <laughs> Hollis has written a book called Living Between Worlds. Oh, interesting. And it is about the kind of things that we talk about. However, Hollis is a much better trained union analyst that I will ever hope to be. And Hollis is not the easiest guy in the world to read. I mean, his background is in the humanities literature and he loves to use big words. Mm. <laughs> so, and I just not say big words. He loves to use words that are not in people's everyday vocabulary. Yeah. So you have to go looking up a lot of things. But what Hollis says in this book and what Daramuda Miraku says are really in line with what you and I say, and that is the primary thing that we are obligated to bring to the table is maturity. Mm-hmm. We've got to grow up. Yeah. And 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 uh, being a bully on the playground is not a grown-up stance. 
taking a gun into a grocery store and shooting 10 people is the act of a child having a temper yeah. tantrum. You know, where it's still permissible for me to say my kiddo is having a bad day. It's not permissible for a 25 year old, a 35 year old, a 60 year old, you know? Um, but when we, when we, but then there's this tipping point when it's not going to work for me to say my kiddo is having a bad day, you know, <laughs> because there is, I, I, I think of our friend Brooke Summers, Perry has this X model, right? That as babies, as little kids, um, they're completely dependent on the parent, right? So the, the, the parent is like the upper, the upper stem of the X and the baby is the lower stem of the X. But as the kid grows older, they get more independence and more personal responsibility so that they travel up the stem of the X and the parent's responsibility goes down. Right now, my kids are at this crossroads. They're right in the middle. And one of our biggest lessons with them right now is how do you take personal responsibility? How do you take responsibility for the things that you do and say? So if you make a mess, you take responsibility and clean it up. If you tell a lie, you take responsibility and, and admit to the truth. You know, it's just, it, and the fear that I have as a parent is of course, and, and I'm a counterphobic sick, so I have these like worst case scenario things going through my mind. <laughs> oh my God, my kid lied to me. He's gonna end up in jail, you know, or, or worse, dead. You know, it's, that's how a parent's mind can work sometime is to the worst case scenario. As I said, a counterphobic sick parent's mind may go there faster. But I just, you know, this is terrifying as a parent to be parenting at this time when they have access to such ready-made images of sexual violence, person-to-person -person violence, first-person shooter games, that, that if you just click on something on YouTube, it pops up, it's right there. And there's no way that I can move at a speed fast enough to protect my kids from seeing all of that. I just can't. Do you uh, take advantage of YouTube yourself? I watch things on YouTube from time to time, yeah. So you know that YouTube is somewhat like Amazon mm -hmm. in that they have logarithms yep. that pay attention to what you watch yep. and they feed you more yep. of it. So um, as you know, I, uh, I'm fascinated with airplanes and flying. So you can go on YouTube and you can watch in the cockpit views of planes landing mm -hmm. in various places like triple sevens and mm -hmm. the big airbus mm -hmm. landing and all that sort of stuff the carriers are never from the united states because the faa makes that illegal to do but you can get inside a Lufthansa plane and watch it take off from wherever and land somewhere mm -hmm. else and then when you watch that, then the next one is, you'll notice they'll feed you another one. They'll feed you another one. They'll feed you another mm -hmm. one. So I got on YouTube and found out I could watch Daramuda Murakyu mm -hmm. on, and then I got another one and another one and another. Well, that's what happens to kids. Yeah. Is they watch something and the log logarithm just feeds them more right. and more and yeah. more. And that's, I mean, and that is where the parent is not, can't keep up with the logarithm. You know, there's just 
So yeah, they have access to things. And this is, you know, my choice as a parent has been to be very honest and open with my kids. I, I do not try to protect them from the realities of the world. I just think that that's setting them up for, this is also interesting, Bill, because I think I am a white parent of biracial kids. I do not think I have a choice to protect them from the realities of the world. A lot of my white counterparts who are white parents parenting white children feel that they have a choice to protect them from certain things. So we don't talk about racism. I don't want my kids to know about that. I don't have that choice. I don't feel that mm -hmm. I do. I, I do. I could not talk to them about it. And then they could be devastated when they actually witness it, right? Um, or experience it themselves. And, and, and so this is also interesting to find myself in this crossroads. What as a parent of, of biracial kids do I feel obliged to talk to my kids about to sort of prepare them for reality that many of my white privileged counterparts do not feel that same urgency around? You know, there there mm -hmm. some, I've told you this story some years ago, um, my middle kiddo, who is the one who is really sort of interested, he's, I, I'm pretty positive he's a seven on the Enneagram. He's just interested in everything, among them guns. And he really wants a BB gun or he wanted one some time ago. And I was like, I'm never going to be that parent. I'm not going to buy you a BB gun. I don't, I don't support it. I don't see any reason for it. Um, around the time that, you know, Tamir Rice was a 12 year old boy who had a water gun in a park and he got shot by police. 12 year old black boy. I should be very clear about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got shot by police for having a weapon later to find out it's a water gun. Little kids are allowed to play with water guns. Why is that bad? So as a parent of, 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 of biracial boys, I'm going, oh my God, my kids can't even play with water guns in the front yard. And I am very protective of that. I do not want them to be mistaken for real guns if, if the neighborhood patrol drives by. Let's flip to another scene. I have a friend around the corner who has two teenage boys, um, white kids. They were um, riding around the neighborhood one day. They had, um, they had, created, they had water guns that they had bought spray paint and they had spray painted them black and water guns are designed to look like real guns and body. They had spray painted them black and they had cut off the ends of them so that they could just blast water. So the effect was a sawed off shotgun, but it was really just like a sawed off water gun and they made it look like a real gun. They're riding around the neighborhood with these guns. And, and the mom was kind of like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. And I just thought my kids could never do that. Right. They could never do that. It would, in fact, be irresponsible of me to let them do that. Right. And it just is like, how do you explain that to your kid? You can't, but your white counterpart can. And I just feel like I want everyone to hold a little bit of that. And if we could hold a little bit of like, we still live in this very imperfect world where, where racism exists, where assumptions exist about who is more violent and who is less violent. What can parents who feel that they don't yet have to talk to their kids about this stuff do to help protect my kids too. You know? Well, one of the things that they can do is be involved. In, I know this sounds shallow, but it's not, I, I don't think. They can get involved in the awareness raising that comes with reading such book as books as Dyson's Sermon mm -hmm. to White America, The Tears We Cannot Stop. Mm -hmm. um, I could not I could not read that book uh, easily. Yeah. Uh, I think it was the first thing that I read long before George mm -hmm. Floyd. Uh, 
And um, it was so painful for me to hear this man talk about what his sons, what he and his sons went through, uh, how they had to have what's called the talk, how they had to be told how to drive, uh, how to never take their hands off steering wheel. Uh, it, it just things that I never, ever have to think about and never talk to yeah. my kids about because there was no need right. to. So going back to the theme, living between the no longer and the not yet. <laughs> I think that one of the things that has America in its grips is that a certain portion, and sadly, it's a large portion, nearly half of our population, seems unwilling to do the work to step away from the no longer. As a matter of fact, the theme that caught America's attention five years ago was make America great again. Go back, turn back, go back to some other time. <coughs> well, that time is killing us. Yeah. And, and the end is going to come. I'm not being a prophet of doom. The end is going to come either by our own willfulness, I mean, grown-up, mature people saying, this has got to stop. Mm -hmm. And taking steps to assure that it stops instead of saying, oh, our hearts and prayers are with you. <clears throat> I hate that mm -hmm. phrase. Mm -hmm. Or we're going to bring it into ourselves. We're going to de devolve into uh, a, a system not working so badly that it collapses. Yeah. And I hate to say that, but um, I think that's a very distinct possibility. Our, our our Congress can't function. Our government's not functioning. You know, I, this is a micro example, and we've brought this up before. But I think of um, you know our our friend and and beloved leader, Jim Bankston, who was willing to make a really strong stance for inclusion at St. Paul's before it was popular to do so. And he risked and knew he would risk losing some people, right? And, and, and did, I don't know the numbers, I don't know how much, but, but I also think that the other thing that happens when we make way for a radical, strong stance based in love not based in fear, but based in love. Yes, we lose those who are not ready to move on from the no longer, but we open the door that much wider. You know, so there's always loss. There's always a kind of death when you make a strong stance because you're gonna lose mm. something, but there's also rebirth. And I mean, gosh, here we are in the Easter story, right? Like this is, what is the rebirth? What is the resurrection that we need, the redemption that we need? We need to widen that doorway. We need a strong stance of inclusion and love. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, love is sort of this really hard to define. The name of our podcast in some ways came from how Diatima, the oracle, defined love, which was as the in-between, as the metaxis. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I firmly believe that, but, you know, one of my favorite authors, Bell Hooks, it, she wants to give serious attention to the role of love in creating an ethical society. Mm -hmm. and, and, 
And love doesn't get the kind of scholarship and attention. It's considered a very feminine soft value, right? Um, but if we cannot talk about love where justice is concerned, if we cannot talk about the role of love in transforming society, we can't transform our society. You know, um, I got, I take, I take several religious journals. Um, I take a couple of really, really good Buddhist journals, Buddha Dharma and uh, Tricycle, uh, the Lion's Roar is now called. And I take uh, two outstanding uh, Christian journals, the Christian Century and Sojourners, because mm -hmm. I want to keep up with things. And in this week's issue, Christian Century comes out every other week. And in this week's issue, the, the lead story is A Pastor Rethinks Substitutionary Atonement. Mm. And I oh, shuddered to see the headline. And I opened the article and started reading. And this person who wrote the article said that it, she, she's a pastor, um, decided to rethink the whole notion of substitutionary atonement, not so much because she thought it was good theology, but because her people needed to believe it. That's about as bad a way to do theology as I can possibly think yeah. of. And it's another way of, of sidestepping responsibility for being a human being living in this brief, bright flesh yeah. between two voids about how can we search for and live as full and meaningful lives as possible without asking somebody else to get us off the mm -hmm. hook. Yeah. The personal responsibility bit, right? That's the personal yeah. responsibility thing all over yeah. again. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've been thinking about writing a letter to the editor, which is something I've only done once of the time in my life. So um, I don't know if I'll do yeah. it or not. But this is not a way to go. It's so I'm sad. I'm sad about I'm sad about the shootings in Colorado and all the others that have been, yeah. <clears throat> and and that we're just blinded to the statistics of how many people die every thirty to forty minutes of gun yeah. violence in this yeah. country. I think this sort of um, numbness to violence is part of also why we have no idea how to hold or grieve over 500,000 deaths in this country from COVID. You know, just what is the value? And I, I wanna be careful here because I'm not trying to get into um, um, a political statement of pro-life or not, but like, what is the value of a human life in this country? Well, you know, this brilliant person who co-teaches with you on Sunday said this past week, <laughs> it really does boil down to yeah, that. Right. It boils down to that question, what what is a human life worth? We do ascribe value to uh, human life. Um, some newscaster on a conservative network was quoted as saying yesterday about people crossing the border from Mexico into the United States, these less than human beings, these less than human beings, yeah. We have that mentality. That's the way some people think. I think that there's probably more in this country than we even realize who somewhere 
still believe like, well, yeah, America is the greatest, right? And, and that's dangerous thinking because that gets into what do we define as America? Usually it's white America, you know, you know I mean, it's just, it is, we are so blinded by this feeling of being more deserving, of being more just, of having more freedoms. And yet we are like children who have not, who are in the middle of that X, who have not yet learned how to handle our freedom. We just have it. Did you read, did you read Susan Yarbrough's book, Bench Crest? Yeah. Um, that book it made me, simultaneously so proud of America mm. that people want to come here out of the belief right. that they can have a better way of life. And that book made me so ashamed of America because many of the conditions from which they are fleeing, we were complicit yeah. in creating. Yeah. Our economic policy, our international economic and, 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 wartime, war-based economy is very, it impacts, you know, in, okay, so let's trace back to 9-11, for example, um, carried out by um, Al-Qaeda, mostly Afghani terrorists, at a different point in history. We were providing weapons to Afghanistan to fight against Russia. Then at a different point in history, we were providing weapons to Iraq to fight against Iran, and then Iran to fight against Iraq. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is just, an, this is an insane way of doing international policy, opportunistic, transactional. But it's such a great way to make money. Yeah. I think that maybe what is sort of dawning on me right now, and I know this might sound very obvious, is that our, 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 our addiction to violence may come from our addiction to greed, our addiction to mm -hmm. capitalism, right. you know? You have something that I want, and if it involves taking your life, I'll yeah. get it. Or I need to express something. Well, this has been my rant for the day. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I am pushing uh, Jim Hollis's uh, book between the two worlds. I think it's good. And if people have not read Susan Arbor's book, Bench Pressed, uh, you can still get it off Amazon and... Um, it's it's a really worth worth it's reading. Good. It's a well written little book. Yeah. It's good, and she really exposes her own vulnerability as a human being, as having also been yeah. a judge. Yeah. And 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 please, folks, if you have ideas of um, a direction uh, for content that you would like to see ordinary life go in, um, and it's fairly simple to do, send those to me. If it's really tough, complicated stuff, send those to Holly. There we go. <laughs> Suggestion box okay, is open. Got, I got you back. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks. I will see you soon. Okay, Bye.